do you feel like money's changed you? Yeah, very good. It's a really, it's a tough, touchy, emotional question. So it's a yes and no answer. So up until my 30s, I was obsessed about it, really. And then after my dad made this huge uh, score, we'll call it, in the cellular phone industry, he built a house in Lake Tahoe. It was his dream to retire in Lake Tahoe and ski off the rest of his life. And uh, it was Christmas, you know, about 30 years ago. And uh, it was like the top of the market for the family at large, meaning all my brothers, sisters, stepbrothers, and sisters, everybody was doing well. Everybody was happy. We're starting families. Everything was going really, really well. My dad was obviously doing quite well. His new wife was great. Everything just couldn't be better. And three days later, four days later, on the uh, New Year's Eve day, my dad was hit by a truck and paralyzed from the neck down. And so I flew back and saw the reality of what money really means. And so he had, you know, multiple million dollar worth, you know, the house was probably worth at that time. We're talking 30 years ago on Lake Tahoe, probably 1.2 million. So I don't know, it's 10 now. I don't know. Anyway, the point I'm making is that he would have given up all that money to be able to walk again. So from that point to this point, I have always put health above wealth and I've always put money in the proper perspective because there's nothing more intimate than seeing someone you love that much in a compromised position and you get a, a whole, let's say, attitude adjustment. After that, my focus was changed dramatically and I've lived my life differently really ever since. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back. Another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, episode 211 here. This is Clark here with Jace. Jace, what's going on, man? Congrats on your baby. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, I got a healthy little girl and we're all home, safe and sound. Wife's doing great. So, yeah, man, it's exciting. It's a, it's a little wild. My my oldest is uh, super excited to help out and my little guy is... Uh, not quite so interested in having another little one around. <laughs> <laughs> Does he even know what's going on? Uh, I think so. I don't know. It's kind of weird. I think he just is, you know, in shock for a little bit, and but has not had any interest in holding her, talking to her. I think he barely touched her uh, before he went to bed, and that's about it. So kind of weird, but, yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> And what about your daughter? She wants to to hold her and everything. Oh yeah, man. Not quite she, yet. Oh yeah, yeah, this is her little thing. Yeah, she was so stoked. She uh, yeah wants to hold her, wants to carry her, wants to do everything for. Her. <laughs> oh man, that's fun. That's fun. Well, congratulations. Thanks. So we got a listener question this week from Kim. Uh, subject line: How to value your primary home? And she writes. During a lot of your interviews, you ask the millionaires what their house is worth and or how much of their wealth is in the equity of their home. Should your net worth calculation use the latest county real estate tax value or should you go by the Zillow value or the Realtor.com value or how do you get your value for your house, she asks. She says our latest tax value is about three hundred and seventy-five grand, but Zillow tells us our home is worth five hundred. Realtor says 450. So there's some differences there. 
Happy to say we are millionaires with or, with or without including the house. Thank you, Kim. So, Kim, thanks for writing in and thanks for listening. And we welcome you to, or, or we invite you to come on the show. But what do you think, Jace? How do you value your home? My kind of quick initial response is comps, I think, is the best way to probably go right off the bat. Yeah, no, it's funny that this question came in this week is Zillow has just recently announced they're getting out of the iBuying world. It's basically come to light that they have been overpaying for their homes and their models and algorithms are not working properly or to what they expected. So essentially they were paying three to 5% more than maybe what the market was actually paying for those homes that they buy. I think they've got like 7,000 they've got on load. But at any rate, to, to answer the question and the way I go about doing it is, you know, typically, and then this is in Texas, and I don't know how this is in other states, but the, the tax records are usually lagging quite behind uh, actual real values. And everyone knows that. And then there's also laws put in place where those can't necessarily rise at, you know, say 8% or 10% or whatever it is in different counties. They can't rise more than that in a given year. And sometimes property values go up more than that. So I don't even look at the county records or the tax records in terms of valuation. And like you mentioned, looking at comps, I think that's probably the best and most accurate way, you know, look at your neighborhood, look at the price per square foot, of the homes that recently sold in your area. And that'll probably give you, if you can look in the last four to six months, I mean, this is usually typically the way appraisers go about it. That'll give you a more accurate view into what your actual value is. And you can get down into the details and make some adjustments if you really want to, you know, based on, you know, if you know your neighbor's house, same floor plan, but you added this or upgraded this or they upgraded or whatever and make some small adjustments. But I don't really get too too far into the details. Uh, you know, I think Zillow for the most part and Realtor.com have probably had somewhat of accurate values in the past. I mean, obviously Zillow overpaid for some recently, but... I think those trends are on their website are, you know, for the most part accurate. Uh, I don't know that I completely rely on it in terms of like, hey, I'm going to put this on my on my personal uh, balance sheet every you know month if it moves. But I think they're good reference points. Yeah, yeah, I agree, completely agree. So reference points, but going off appraisals. And then, Jace, you sent me just before this, the IRS made uh, increase the contribution limits for retirement accounts, right? Yeah, just announced 401k. on what November fourth. So increased four hundred one k contributions to twenty thousand five hundred for twenty twenty two. There's also all sorts of catch up contribution uh, details that has not increased from twenty twenty one. So it's staying at sixty five hundred. And there's all sorts of different uh, things. And I mean, this time of year anyway is just we start learning about what those limits and income ranges and everything. So, yeah, something to be aware of. And, uh, yeah, the IRS just announced that uh, today, November 4th. Yeah, and then the phase-out limits uh, go up as well. So this says, for married couples filing jointly, the income phase-out range is increased to 204000 to 214 up from 198 and 208 So they'll increase those a few thousand each year as well. So just as a quick recap, last week on the show, we had John. He works in the auto and tech industry, started changing tires, right? And now he's gone up and works in Silicon Valley. He has a net worth of 1.7, $675,000 or so in public securities between retirement accounts and brokerage accounts, and then about a million dollars in real estate equity. 
So interesting interview with him. He has a desire to build up his rental portfolio. And then we also discussed career management with him because he kind of made such a significant transition there in his career. This week, we have David. He's in his 60s, net worth of over $2 million, and has extensive holdings in gold and silver and other precious metals. So one of the few that we've had on that are, are big into precious metals and interesting just to see a different perspective there. So interesting career path with him that landed him ultimately in the financial industry. So thanks again to David and, and John for coming on the show. So thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. And thanks to Kim again for asking a question. If you'd like to ask a question, email us at millionairesunveiled at gmail.com or you can go into our website, millionairesunveiled.com. Hit the tab, ask a millionaire. And, and there you can either record a question or email one in. So thanks for listening again. And without any further delay, let's get right into this week's episode. David, do you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Sure, my background. Well, it's my favorite topic. I, mean, I could go on and on. But basically, uh, oh, I'm in my 60s. I've been interested in money since I was a small kid, 11 years of age. The coin has changed from 90% silver coins to the Johnson Slugs. That kind of started me uh, in the curiosity about money. I started doing self-study, and I um, basically wanted to go in finance. I told my dad that when I was about 14, 15. He blew up. He said, you're not going to do that. Figure out something else. So I went and read the career guide to the encyclopedia, uh, World Book Encyclopedia that we had. And it looked like airline pilot looked like a pretty good thing a 15-year-old would do. So I started flying at 16. By the time I was 19, I had every rating you could get. I got a degree in aeronautical engineering and fully committed basically to an aircraft career. But the whole time I was interested in finance and was trading the markets and started trading the stocks when I was 16 years old under the Uniform Gift to Miners Act. So I kind of had a foot in something what was really awesome. I mean, I have a lot of, you know, flying stories, which we won't go into, but I had that career. But at the same time, my heart of hearts was still in the financial world. So I had a pretty brief aircraft career, worked with a certified financial planner, Learned uh, more and more about investing, went back to school, got a finance uh, degree, and started um, working in the field under, as I said, a CFP, and then branched out and started doing my own thing, traded for a living uh, successfully. And then when uh, the internet came about as an early adopter, started a research page on precious metals, had a couple of people contacted me, said, what do you do? I said, well, it's time to start a newsletter. So I said, I'd do it. Started in on that, and it's been my passion ever since. So I always really wanted to be in that field, but never really um, took an effort to do it. It sort of like fell in my lap, and it wasn't that easy, folks. We can go into more detail, but it's one of those things that you know I'm just doing my passion, and someone basically said, "Hey, I like what you're doing. How do I get involved?" And I said, "Well, I write a newsletter." And he says, "How much is it?" And I said, "Well, geez, I've been in business for 12 milliseconds, but I tell this guy." So I came up with a number and he said, okay, <laughs> and sent me a check. And that started this, uh, this career path. Wow, that's awesome. So what is your net worth today? Well, I like to just keep it kind of private, but over $2 million, And I, always, I was thinking about this question because I know you ask it and it's every right to ask it. And I remember when I asked Bunky Hunt. And for those that don't know, I'm kind of a silver aficionado. I'm really involved in the silver market and have been for a long time. And when they asked Bunky Hutt, uh, you know, what are you worth? He, his response was, people who know what they're worth usually aren't worth very much. <laughs> so <laughs> I always liked that answer because at the time, 
he was uh, uh, not a Bill Gates equivalent, but in that genre, like, oh, my God, Bunky Hunt is like, wow, you know, like, there aren't many people that have the net worth that Bunky Hunt had at that time. So, anyway, I always love that answer. People that know what they're worth usually aren't worth very much. So, it varies. <laughs> so, you, so, you're saying you don't know what you're worth. That's right. It varies. <laughs> it's it's two plus. <laughs> good, good. How, it can how, move. If, I, if you got the silver positions that I have. Um, you know, a $10 move can be a substantial change in your net worth. I'll put it that way. Yeah, let's let's get into that a little bit. So how do you look at at your allocation? I know you're you're pretty heavy in, in precious metals and maybe give our listeners a little context around that, maybe the journey that you've gotten to, to where you have your allocation today. Well, I would say that any CFP would uh, tear it apart and say you don't know what you're doing and that type of thing. And I would probably agree with them from the, what they're trained to do and from a prudent man theory, which we're, we must do as a CFP. I'm not a registered investment advisor. Let's get that clear. I left that uh, field so I could pursue uh, a specialty, which is the resource sector, not just precious metals, which is my main focus right now. But it's been in all the resources, copper, lithium, molybdenum, uh, cobalt, uh, the rare earth elements, uh, the base metal, zinc. We were first called the zinc bottom. And on and on it goes. So anything in the resource sector, pretty much, even energy, although I don't do energy that much. So back to your question, yeah, I'm allocated because it's what I know the best. So if you're a specialist in something, you know, if you're a brain surgeon, you're probably not going to, you know, be a veterinarian kind of thing. So in that context, uh, most of what I have is um, in the metals or mining related or cryptocurrency that's metals related. I do have real estate, but not much relative to my net worth. I mean, I have, and it's, you know, it's up there. I mean, it's worth some, something, you know, fairly substantial. But, um, no, I was just the path of me. And that was what happens to an unbacked, unsound financial system eventually. There's a currency war, which is what we're experiencing now. Uh, before it ends, there is uh, the public basically comes into view and understands something's going on. And there's what we have competing, what, what is called competing currencies. And that's really the advent of the cryptocurrency genre. It all comes because the failure of the system at large is taking place. Most people don't stop and analyze it and say, oh, that's why cryptos are doing so well. They may know it subconsciously. A lot of people don't understand why. The why is because there's, it needs to be replaced. The system that they're in is failing. And because I know all this history, I'm overeducated. In fact, so overeducated that when the um, gold market peaked in January 21st, 1980, I was about 90% convinced that was the end. And again, why overeducated? Because I knew monetary history and that interest rates aren't only a function of return, they're a function of risk. And if you had the long bond at 20%, that was mafia money on the street in New York, you know, four months before. You couldn't get 20% from a government bond. Are you kidding? The thing's ready to crash. Couldn't have been more wrong. The best thing you could have possibly done in 1980 was sell every ounce of gold that you had, put it all in the long bond get that 20% or near 20% interest rate and hold it for 30 years and watch the interest rates come down and your bond prices double, redouble, and double again. I mean, that was the best, safest investment you could have done. But all things come to an end now where we're at after 30, 40 years 
is the bond market is basically topping. And I think the big key to watch for all the financial sector is the bond market or the debt markets or the credit markets, however you want to refer to them, because this debt cannot be paid back. So because of that fact, there's going to be some huge historic changes in the way we set, do settlement payments and peer-to-peer payment and uh, how we account for our net worth and everything else. And this is changing before our eyes with not only what's happening in the gold market, which is pretty subtle still at this point, but what's going on with the crypto market. And really what's in the news, and you guys are both wide awake and very aware, is the CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currencies. They have been signaling for anyone that's awake. I've been writing about it in my private work now for several months, is a central bank digital currency is going to replace the current system. So that's what you're that's what you're saying versus and, and where does precious metals come into the future? Yeah, right now I think it's a transition point. I mean that's you know, I've kind of changed my um viewpoint over the years and I reserve the right to do so. I mean, if you get better data, you usually have a better uh, ability to you know forecast the future. So initially, you know, you go back before cryptos, I was pretty certain that gold would be reinstituted as a monetary asset by the banking system. Not ruling that it won't be tied to the monetary system at some point, but I don't think it'll be voluntary. I don't think the banking system at large will want to use gold as one of the parameters. I think they're looking at MMT, modern money theory. They're going to be able to print whatever they want. They're just going to digitize it. They'll figure out a way to offset the bad debt, put it on the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve, and then they'll take the Federal Reserve and uh, uh, reinvent it. They'll just wash all that debt away like it didn't exist. Uh, they'll keep their people that they want to stay alive financially healthy, and the ones that they don't will go down the drain, sort of a Lehman Brothers repeat, except it'll be very vast. It won't just be a few investment banks. It'll be, you know, whole industries. But I think that's what we're looking at. And um, it's going to be a very trying time for a lot of people. I think that we will come out on the other side, probably better than we are now, but I'm not sure of that. I am sure, or I'm fairly certain that we will see the money metals play a key role in the transition where that you, where the crossover between the current system and the new system, the metals will probably be key in preserving your wealth and not losing much wealth in the transition. So if I have five grand or 10 grand to invest right now, what are you telling, what should I invest in crypto? No, I don't think you should invest in anything. (laughs) At five grand level, I would say you probably should keep it in the bank. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not anti-bank. I'm not very fond of the fractional reserve banking system. I've written about it for years, but it is a system that works. And, uh, you know, I, I think, most people should, first of all, save cash until they have about six months worth of uh, expenses covered. comes from my CFP training, Certified Financial Planner. Basically, tell everybody, you know, you have an emergency fund. There's nothing more stable, really, than cash, even though it's lost a lot of its value. Um, you know, you could put some, you could, you know, you, principles apply. I mean, you take 20% and, you know, buy one half ounce of gold or something and 4000 in cash. But... I don't think there's any until you have a cash basis built for emergencies, then after that's established, then you can go into investing. So if you had ten thousand and five thousand covered you for six months, where would you put the five at this point? I would hold it. 
I'm building cash right now personally, so I'm telling you what I'm doing. I'm not interested in the stock market at these levels. I'm not interested in the gold at level right now. I think it's going to come down. I want to see more stability in the market. And I'm really not interested in the cryptos. They're on the move right now. And I don't think there's any value out there. So right now, personally, I'm building cash. And there's nothing wrong with having a cash position so you can get a good investment at a better price. So I think that's what I would be doing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what I meant by it is you have enough in your emergency fund and then you're looking to diversify. So, so how did all this start? I mean, how did you become this expert on precious metals? How long did you, how long were you an airline pilot? Let's start with that. Well, I was actually in the uh, test field. I worked for Rockwell International as a crew member on a B-1 bomber. And then uh, that lasted about three and a half years. And I was picked up by Lockheed Martin of Skunk Works. And I can't say much other than uh, worked at the ranch. And I was uh, cleared for the F-117, which is now publicly known. So I can talk about that. So I was uh, involved with the uh, stealth fighter. And that's about as far as we could go on that topic. But I wasn't in the uh, commercial side, which is what I trained to be and what my ambitions were. But when I graduated from college, um, I was recruited basically by uh, by Rockwell to be on the B-1 bomber. And then uh, Lockheed, basically, when the B-1 was kind of wrapping up, they approached me and said, hey, we've got this black program. I said, is it subsonic or supersonic? Can't tell you. Is it, uh, you know, is it a warrior airplane or is it a, you know, transporter, uh, electronic intelligence or signal intelligence airplane? Can't tell you. Well, what can you tell me? We can tell you you're going to like it. <laughs> so that's, so I'll go about that far. So then where did, where did the precious metals come into play? Well, since I self-studied for years before I even got to that point in my life, I was like trading silver. Uh, you know, I got scolded one time for the amount of calls. I was calling my futures broker from the work phone. But uh, so it just was embedded in me from, uh, you know, not at 16, I was just buying stocks. About 18, 19, I started to understand the banking system and started getting into the precious metals markets. Then um, as I got into my career, air, you know, my uh, aircraft career, I was uh, doing more in the in the mining shares and the futures markets. Just you know, made a good living, especially when I worked out of town because you, there was nothing really to do except work and save your money. And I was single, so you know, I had quite a bit of cash flow. So I was invested quite a bit into the uh, that sector. So the whole time I was in that career, I was like another career, more or less. In fact. I remember distinctly one of the older engineers came to our office one time and he goes, well, why don't you just start doing, you know, what you love? It's so obvious what your passion is here. I don't even remember giving him an answer, but um, I that career ended and I moved into this one pretty easily because I was so passionate about it. And we already kind of went over that. So, David, you mentioned to us before the show that you weren't always so heavy in, in precious metals. How has that evolved over time, and maybe what did you start with? Yeah, well, I started actually at 16, and I bought the Dow. And I, I've, I've never calculated it, but, uh, you know, what I had as the, you know, 30 Dow stocks, when uh, whenever that was, <laughs> so many years ago, 40-something years ago, what it'd be worth now, I've never done it. It would be quite an investment, a very good buy and hold. But no, I've always been, and I hope I don't come across like some super ego. I try to just be me, but uh, always been a bit of a visionary. And when I was working at CFP, that's I was actually getting my master's in finance, right? So 
And one of the guys in class was talking about uh, his father-in-law had this, you know, was a doctor and he made all this money, but he really didn't have much of retirement. And he met this financial planner and he was just killing it, you know. And I was doing okay on my own, but I'm always willing to learn and, you know, kind of wanted the inside track. So went over and met this guy and I ended up working for him for a while. But regardless, he tipped me off on a few of these let's say asymmetric trades is what we call them now where there's this, uh, you know, high risk, but the upside is so unbelievably good that you almost have to take a shot at it. So he started explaining the cellular phone industry to me. And this was the very beginning of the cellular phone industry before there were cell phones themselves. It was a licensing agreement that um, people could apply to get a license for a certain area to put up a cell phone tower. So the very, very, very beginning. So once you explain that to me, I go, holy moly, this is something. So I took it to my dad and I said, dad, this is what's going on in, uh, with the FCC. And he goes, this is an investment opportunity of a lifetime. This is better than real estate. This is unbelievable. Are you sure about all this stuff? Yeah, I am. So we started working for buying licenses or uh, putting in applications for licenses. And my dad actually formed a small company, and that's all they did. He was an engineer as well. And we started producing uh, FCC applications for cellular phone licenses throughout different parts of the country. And it's a lottery system, so it's literally a lottery. And so if you won one of those systems, then you had an opportunity to either put up the tower or sell the license to somebody, or maybe if you had one, five of them, for example, you might put a tower on one or two and sell the other three. There's lots of options you could do. And there were pools and partnerships and, you know, all kinds of things. Some of them were very convoluted, but that's the overall thing. So that was a situation that took my dad from uh, zero to hero. I'm trying to be funny here. My dad made a good living as an engineer, but once he won one of the licenses in a rather pronounced area of the country, it might be known as where the political elite hang out. It's really not a state. It's more known as a district. Once he was in that area, it changed his financial well-being substantially. Interesting. What were some key lessons that maybe you learned from your dad? I think that very good question. No one's ever asked me that. Thank you. One is uh, how to take a loss. My dad was a pretty strong real estate investor, and the guy that he dealt with was uh, not on the up and up. And, you know, I have to blame my dad because, you know, I look at in my life, uh, when something goes wrong, did I have any part in it? Because it's not always your, you know, seldom you're the victim, but sometimes you are. It does happen. But my dad really wasn't reading the contracts thoroughly enough and signing it off. And he ended up losing about half of his investment that had gone on for like a decade. And I saw how angry he got. And I watched him get angry for like three days. And then on day four, maybe a week later at the most, I just saw him suck it up and say, that's it and move on. And that was like, wow, someone could take that big a hit and put it behind them and look for another opportunity and keep going. That was the biggest lesson I ever learned from my dad. And yeah, I've had, you know, I made some mistakes in the silver market early. I mean, I've been in situations where, you know, the margin calls got to be like a second home kind of thing. And that's not a fun place to be. So I don't make those kind of mistakes now, obviously. But but I know how to take a loss and move on. And that, that I think, was the greatest lesson. So it wasn't about and, – and I think the other one was making it big. When he did do so well with that cellular phone license or two – that I just described a minute ago, 
it really didn't change him. Yeah, he lived large and he, he changed his lifestyle and it was pretty noticeable, but he stayed the same person. He didn't become, you know, better than anybody or he didn't change. And I really admired that. He was the same guy, you know, and I really thought that's really good because money can't change a lot of people. Uh, but it didn't change my dad at all. So those are the two best lessons I learned from him. Do you feel like money's changed you? No, nope. I would say. And, and let me couple that yeah, with sure. if not, if not, how do you how did you make that happen? How did you not let it affect you or change you? Yeah, very good. It's a really that's a tough, touchy, emotional question. So it's a yes and no answer. So up until my 30s, I was obsessed about it, really. And then after my dad made this huge uh, score, we'll call it, in the cellular phone industry, he built a house in Lake Tahoe. It was his dream to retire in Lake Tahoe and ski off the rest of his life. And uh, it was Christmas, you know, about 30 years ago. And uh, it was like the top of the market for the family at large, meaning all my brothers, sisters, stepbrothers, and sisters, everybody was doing well. Everybody was happy. We're starting families. Everything was going really, really well. My dad was obviously doing quite well. His new wife was great. Everything was just couldn't be better. And three days later, four days later, on the uh, New Year's Eve day, my dad was hit by a truck and paralyzed from the neck down. And so I flew back and saw the reality of what money really means. And so he had, you know, multiple million dollar worth, you know, the house was probably worth at that time. We're talking 30 years ago on Lake Tahoe, probably 1.2 million. So I don't know. It's 10 now. I don't know. Anyway, the point I'm making is that he would have given up all that money to be able to walk again. So from that point to this point, I have always put health above wealth and I've always put money in the proper perspective. Because there's nothing more intimate than seeing someone you love that much in a compromised position and you get a, a whole, let's say, attitude adjustment. So I've never forgotten that. It's part of my story I don't tell very often, but you asked and this might be the right time. Sometimes these things come up for a very good reason and you have a very different show about money. And so it all affects us differently. But at that, after that, my focus was changed dramatically and I've lived my life differently really ever since. And it's more about being of service to others. And if I can become wealthy from where I was, whatever that means and help others at the same time, achieve the same things and believe what I believe because most people that subscribe to my paid service obviously think along the same lines, but I have people on the right, I have people on the left, I have people that are central, you know, in the middle but we all have a basic philosophy that the uh, fiat money system has got some real problems ahead, and there's a way to hedge that, and that's by getting involved in the precious metals and the mining shares. So they have that basic philosophy, but I do not and will not. In fact, from the first letter I ever wrote, my sign-off before I sign it with my name is wishing you health above wealth, wisdom beyond knowledge. And the wisdom beyond knowledge is everyone says knowledge is power. And uh, maybe it is, but I disagree. Applied knowledge is power. You know, if you can know how to eat right and become, you know, slim, trim, and fit, you might have the knowledge, but if you don't do it, then what good is the knowledge? So it has to be applied. And wisdom is learning how the world works and working with the world. That's my definition. So having, being wise enough, and that usually comes from experience. And you've asked me two questions on experience, you know. Where did you, you know, start? How did you, you know, do well in investing? And what did you learn about money? 
two very key questions to ask. And, you know, no one knows what the surprise answer is going to be until it's answered. But uh, <laughs> thank you for both those questions. And they're really important, I think, because I have no, you know, in my circles, I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm not trying to brag of just being me, but, you know, I know a few billionaires, no problem. Uh, you know, I've got their cell phone numbers, you know, but they don't seem much happier than me. Uh, they do have different lifestyle and that's fine with me. I don't have anything against that. It's just, uh, there's a point for everybody that's enough. And I learned the true key to happiness is having enough for you. And I do. And that's where, you know, what is it? You know, well, I don't know. People know what they're worth. They aren't worth very much. That sounds really demeaning and I don't mean it to be. I think it's a funny statement, but it's more important to know what you have. I very much say the statement, it's not what you have, it's what you have. And what the heck does that mean? It's not what you have externally. I'm not really interested in how much real estate or how many silver coins you've got. I'm more interested in what you have internally. What are you made of? If you lost everything today financially, what kind of person would you be then? Some people would be nothing. They'd dry up and blow away. And other people wouldn't change at all. Now, that is a spiritually fit person. That's someone that knows wisdom beyond knowledge. Those are the people that have so much, I don't know if it's self-esteem, I wouldn't use that word, but so much power, personal power, or tuned into a higher power that they know that that's an external thing, but they know who they are so deeply and so profoundly that they know they can get it back if they choose to do so. That's the kind of thing I like to teach. That's the kind of thing that you know I like to think I am. But, uh, you know, it's challenging times ahead. It's not going to be too much anymore about what you have. It's going to be more about your social credit score and how much you're politically correct or incorrect as far as where you get to dine, where you get to fly, where you get to, you know, motor around. So there's a big, big change coming in the whole financial structure. All righty, let's take a quick break from this week's episode and thank BetterHelp for sponsoring today's episode. One way to think about therapy is through a bunch of analogies. We get our cars tuned up to prevent bigger issues down the road. We get annual checkups and go to the gym to maintain physical wellness and prevent injury and disease. We do our chores regularly, at least some of us do, to avoid a giant mess of a house. Well, going to therapy can be like some of these. It's routine maintenance for your mental and emotional wellness to prevent bigger issues down the road. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone in person or on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under just 48 hours. So why invest in everything else and not your mind? And Millionaires Unveiled, you guys, listeners, get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash unveiled. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash unveiled. And thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring today's episode. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, thanks for sharing that about your dad. Sorry to hear it, but I mean, I appreciate you sharing. I think it'll connect with somebody. And and along that line, what you just mentioned, you know, if you were to lose it all, what type of person would you be? I guess, did the money and the success bring happiness and fame or whatever to you? And and has it changed since you were 30, right, to where you are now? Because you said that's all you thought about when you were 30. So has it has it brought happiness along the way? Yeah, to some degree it has. I mean, it's really nice to not have to worry about it, right? I mean, if you're sitting there and thinking about, I would, you know, I do a lot of self improvement courses. I haven't done any in the last probably eight or nine years, but you know, some of these people really scrape and save to you know do a fifteen hundred dollar you know one week course or whatever, and 
I'm not saying, you know, I value money always. I always have. I've always been a saver, whatever. But the point is that to some people, that's like, you know, all they can muster for a year or something. And for me, it's not. And so you go out to dinner and they're like, you know, trying to split the bill 12 ways and make it fair. And it's like, give me the bill. <laughs> Let me treat everybody because I can't. But I'm not trying to be a big shot. I'm not trying to be better than anyone. I'm just like, you know what? I see what's going on here. Uh, there's an easy solution. Give me that thing and let's get out of here and enjoy the rest of the evening. So <laughs> that's nice to be able to do, right? And I hopefully do it in a, uh, you know, and not only is it sincere, which it is, but that it's in a low key manner, you know? I mean, some people, oh, why? Well, I couldn't do that. Well, okay, but maybe when you can, you can. You know, I'm a big believer in to pay it forward to. I'm a big believer in being grateful. And I'm grateful I'm able to do that, you know, um, but it's not something I make a habit of, you know, it depends on the circumstances. I've been in situations with the, let's say, billionaire class, and we've been at a, a place. And I mean, the wine was like more than I, you know, you know, it was like $2,000, some ridiculous. And I'm sitting there sweating it thinking, holy moly, man, this bill is going to like put me back like two months of what I make or whatever, right? And uh, I remember one of the mining executives sitting there thinking, oh, man, don't worry about it. What do you mean? You know, no, this is, I won't name the name, but this is so-and-so's part of it. You're just part of it. Don't worry. This is not on you. I said, okay, thanks for letting me know because I wasn't <laughs> sure. So, you know, I mean, it's all relative, right? I think that's my biggest point. It's relative. In some places, I might be kind of the top dog, relatively speaking. In other places, I am the low man. There you go. <laughs> so let's talk generational wealth with this. What's your take on that? Is this money you're going to leave to your children, or what do you plan to do with it? Yeah, well, two things. One is I'll leave some. Uh, the other part is probably start a foundation for monetary education. I have still working on that idea. I have the entity. I haven't really structured much of it from other than the legal paperwork. But, uh, you know, Jim Rickards does a great job of talking about generational wealth. And it's really pretty simple. If you look over history, it's real estate, fine art and gold is basically it. So it's the land, either improved or unimproved. The Europeans say never sell the mud. So if you owned, you know, an acre in downtown Paris, one time it might be a dress shop on it. Then that might go and it might be a small hotel and that might go and it might become a, a computer store. Never sell the mud. Keep the real estate. So that's number one. Number two, gold has proven to store wealth, not necessarily make you wealthy, but prevent you from losing much wealth for millennia i mean thousands of years and the fine arts way outside of my daily wick i know very little about it the only thing i know a little bit about is like the rare coin market and there i'm a novice but uh it is considered art in some circles so that's basically the three areas where you have legacy wealth that can go from generation to generation to generation now of course there are some businesses that can do that as well but not that many if you look at the Dow Jones Industrials, those are the top 30 companies. But if you look at how often they'll remove one and put it in a different one that is more befitting the times that we're in, you'll see that happen again and again and again. In fact, the, la the longest lasting Dow component was homestake mining. I think it was in the Dow for 100 years. It was one of the few that ever went a century. So there's a lot to it. But getting, you know, being a long-term stock 
portfolio investor and having that as generational wealth usually doesn't work unless you're able to filter it like I just described with the, how the Dow works. Interesting. So let me jump back to your allocation here. The, the precious metals you do have, where do you keep all that? Well, uh, there's a very tough as far as how storage is the situations are concerned. I mean, there's a lot of um, contracts that if you read them are not, you got to be very careful. So I have a certain facility that's private that I use and recommend, but I won't say it on the radio. It's just not fitting. It's, I want to keep it private, but people that are, I won't say my inner circle, but any subscriber of mine can learn of it by asking me. But uh, and there's a lot out there that, you know, they, they just have a little bit more risk and some have a lot more risk. And a lot of people it always bothers me in a way that people that may have a high net worth and have a fairly substantial amount of precious metal try to, uh, you know, squeeze off, you know, 25 basis points on the annual fee for storing your metal. Which, you know, I'm, I'm ready to be frugal and save, uh, you know, save a dime or two or a dollar or two, but not at the risk of what that, that means in some of these contracts. So it's a very touchy subject because most people that are at the level that we're talking are uh, needing to facilitate someplace outside of their own home or office or both. And that means storage. And so that's a very right. key element and a very key factor that some people really don't account for properly, in my opinion. Do you think everybody should have some sort of precious metal and crypto in, in their portfolio? I do. And I made a, a video about it. It's the one that's the most popular of any I've done. If you just go to, I guess, Google or Bing or one of these things and you type in myths in the silver market, myth, M-Y-T-H, I think S. Myths in the Silver Market by David Morgan, it'll start out talking about the myth that everyone should own a little. And I go on from that statement. I think everyone should own a little silver and gold. And then I take off and do a rant. So that's true. I do believe everyone should own a little. And then on the cryptos, I'm slight, I'm neutral to slightly positive. I, I know it's, I know the blockchain is here to stay, and I know there's lots of good uses for it. I'm not sold in all the cryptos. Some are very uh, compelling. Others, I will take a pass on. I'm not that well studied on it, but I have people that work with me, and we have been following that space for, oh boy, at least three years, I would say, somewhere. And so we report on it every month, but I'm not the one that writes that part of the report, although obviously I have to edit, read it, and understand sure. it. But, sure. uh, it's not, I don't spend as much time. My, fa you know, my favorite thing is the, the mining shares and the, and the macro picture. I mean, I always have to write about gold and silver because people aren't investing in those and, you know, I'm kind of giving them a guiding hand, but I'm more interested in how th those metals fit into the big, big picture, which is where we started the, this discussion with the, yeah. you know, the banking digital currency system, central bank digital currencies. So what, What's your, I'm just going to wrap up with a couple questions and then we'll get into some rapid fire kind of questions that we ask usually. What is your motivator now and what was it previously? How, how has that changed through the years? Yeah, well, before 30 was me, 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 I, I, I. So that's pretty easy to find. And then uh, after the accident, then it was much more focused on um, 
being a vehicle to be of maximum service to others. What could I do that would serve me and serve others at the same time? How do I ride that paradox? Well, if I'm really as good as I think I am in investing, and I know these newsletter writers, for the most part, don't know what the heck they're doing. They're fleecing the public. If I start a publication with a head and heart that's really meaningfully set to try to help as many people as possible, maybe that's the way to start. And so that's been kind of my mindset from the day I wrote my first, you know, Morgan report. So, so the, the health over wealth mindset now, how does that affect your decision making? Is it, well, is it less some, work hours? Is yeah. it more exercise? Is it just more awareness? Well, first of all, I think, yeah, that's a great question. A little difficult for me to answer. I, one of the things I say often in interviews is balance. So, you know, if you're all about money, you give up your health perhaps to get there, right? If you're working 14 hour days till you're 70 and all of a sudden you've got, you know, five different diseases and 12 different pills to take, uh, then you can go the other way where you're the most fit person on the block and maybe you own a restaurant, but you don't know how to save any money and you get to an age of retirement. You realize you don't know what you're doing because you don't know how to manage money. So I'm all about balance. I think you've got to be, you know, mentally, spiritually, and physically fit and balanced. So that's what I strive to do. So yeah, I'm, uh, do all those. I do not spend, uh, you know, I got a regular routine. I do almost every morning for, uh, physicality. I have a trainer cause I can afford one. And believe me, when you pay for a workout, you never miss one, you know? And when I do it on my own, I always can find an excuse or too much of the time has gone by or whatever. So I usually knock it out first thing in the morning and it's three days a week with a trainer and three days a week on my own, my gym and the, that I have in the house here. And then uh, always try to read something or try to learn something new. Always try to, uh, in my weekly planner, look for somebody that needs some help. Try to do uh, random acts of kindness and not get found out. I do have a, uh, let's say, spiritual side to me that's uh, usually a daily, daily thing. So I think that pretty much covers it. Do you want to go a little deeper on any yeah. of that? No, no, that's interesting. I, I just... I guess my one follow up to that is the the fourteen hour day thing. You probably did that until you were thirties oh, or mid or mid thirties. Oh yeah. What, was it oh. was it worth it or do you regret it? Looking back, um, you know I don't regret it because I had the energy to do it. If I had to do that now, no, I'm really good delegator. I mean, the people that work with me. I could not be happier or more grateful for their abilities. And I'm not a micromanager at all. I'm a real free market thinker. So I give like vague, broad brush strokes. I need you to look at what's going to happen in the mining industry over the next 10 years. I want to know how robotics is going to affect us. And that's the assignment. That's pretty broad brush. And most of my people can handle that kind of a broad stroke. Well, David, I've done enough research. It's going to be about a three three-month article do you want to go with it go, yeah let's do that let's just break it into three parts we don't have to give them you know war and peace in one one month's report so so i really do love what i do i really love the people that work with me i really feel like um that if you give from the heart i think you're getting more of that you know i don't know the law of attraction and all this stuff i've looked at the secret i've read the book but I don't know if I understand it. What I do know from my personal experience, it seems that the more giving and open I am, the more I'm able to receive. And I don't really want to make that look a huge point, but I do have to voice it because it's true for me. That doesn't make it true for everyone. Yeah. So let me just wrap up with some rapid fire questions here. How old were you when you became a millionaire? Do you remember? Oh, boy, that would be a tough one. 
probably just before 50. Before 50, you said? Yeah. Okay. Um, if you're comfortable sharing, how much do you spend a year? Oh, boy. That's a good question. <laughs> oh, well, let's see. And the next one's going to be how much you make a year. So, no, okay. Well, that one, I'll keep that at, um, let's keep that one around 400K or more. We'll leave it that one for the how much a year. How much I spend? I'd say about 80K a year. So you're a somewhat frugal guy, huh? Yeah, I live well under what I could. Well, well under it. I mean, I hardly ever fight first class. Uh, I do occasionally. Why not? You know, I've got, you know, got the, the beautiful suits, but I only have two of them. I don't, you know, get on stage much anymore. So why would I buy another one now, right? Um, no, I, I drive under what I could drive. I did the the car thing. I probably could have been a millionaire earlier if I wasn't like <laughs> car. I had to have the cars. I had to have the cars, <laughs> but uh, not now. I don't have to have the cars now. Okay. Do you have a, any financial goal or passive income goal or net worth goal, anything like that? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I do have like a passive income goal in a couple areas. One is in a affiliate program with precious metals. I want to be able to make you know, um, somewhere in the uh, 8000 a month range, which I'm pretty close to that on that one. And then um, on this load program where I'm an affiliate, I do get a bit of a spiff on um, working with them, doing some uh, work for them, basically getting paid for what I'm doing. And uh, that is a variable, and we really haven't figured it out because we're going to the next level. But I would shoot for basically the same thing. So it'd be like double what I need to live on. So if I was making uh, 80 times 260 passive income, you know, not counting, uh, you know, the stuff I get for the uh, past career. <clears throat> it'd be fun. Okay, awesome. So just in closing here, any mistakes you've made or advice you'd give to somebody who's starting off and looks at your story and says, hey, I want I want to be like that guy. What would be your advice? Well, first of all, in the mining sector, there's a whole lot of uh, pump and dump and a lot of penny stocks that you should do nothing with. If you really want to go broke in the mining sector, buy the cheap stocks. Once in a while, they will absolutely make you rich and you can become something overnight. It's very, very rare. It happens about one, one in four or five thousands. So it's more of a lottery ticket, like I described on the cellular phone business, but that was a much better odds than what you get in the mining sector. Um, so I'd be learn, you know, education's always key. I think you, if you're not educated, then, you know, the next thing is find a newsletter writer or somebody in the industry. If you go to a financial planner, they tell you don't buy the gold at all. Stay away from it. Bad, 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 bad. If you go to a newsletter writer, they're going to go, 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 go. So you got to, again, find that balance. But you want to find a balance of somebody that's, you know, been there, done that, and really is there to serve you, serve you and not serve themselves. And that's a little bit tricky because the ad copy is so strong in some of these gold newsletter writers or precious metals or let's say that um, get rich quick genre, which unfortunately uh, in my arena, there's too much of that. So you got to be careful. So David, just wrapping up here, where can people find you or get in contact with you or learn more about what you do? Well, like we discussed earlier, I really am a big believer in giving to others. So I have a free newsletter that gives a lot of great information. I get complimented all the time and it is just my time. And whether you're rich or poor, time is our most valuable asset. I think most people would agree with that. So just go to themorganreport.com. You have to put the word the, themorganreport.com, and just put in a name and an email. You'll get my free newsletter. 
You get all the podcasts I do. You get discounts on stuff. Uh, there's a lot of promotions we do from time to time and just good, solid information about the economy. I do a weekly podcast myself personally that briefs everyone on the global financial picture. And I usually end with something about the precious metals. So. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, everyone. Again, that's David Networth of over $2 million. Thanks again for coming on and sharing your story. Really appreciate it. Thanks, David. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.